Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. With a package on the way, we get on a 30-hour bus ride from Blancabon, Laos to Kunming, China. This week on the podcast, five storytellers share their true personal story on the theme, Forward to Better. Talking about kids, about love. Their stories were recorded live in person in front of a sold-out crowd on August 10th. 2021 at Bonner Park Banshaw in Missoula, Montana. I saw the bus number two leaving the station. Where does this bus come from? And I just felt this pressure. Like it was now or never. Next week, we'll hear the final story of the night told in tandem by two storytellers. More on that later. We wouldn't have been able to produce the event without the help of our title sponsor, Blackfoot Communications. We are so grateful to the team at Blackfoot for their support, not only financially, but also for providing volunteers to help staff the event. Volunteers screened guests for COVID, verified ticket holders, and welcomed guests as they arrived at the performance space. Thank you so much to everyone over at Blackfoot Communications for their support. Learn more about Blackfoot over at blackfoot.com. Our first story comes to us from Sasha Vermel. Sasha calls her story Pieces of Home in Far-Off Lands. Thanks for listening. So I'm walking into a post office in Kunming, China. It's a sleepy little college town of 6.6 million people that you've probably never heard of. I'm with my husband, and between the two of us, we know about five words in Mandarin. So we are armed only with a first-generation iPhone and a determination to walk out of here with our package. So we load up the beta version of Google Translate. Do you have our package? The words show on the screen, the woman reads them, then she speaks into the screen, and we wait as the words come up, and it says, where is the Chamber of Secrets? I don't know, is that where our package is? We're able to work it out, and she arrives out of the warehouse with our great big package, and we gleefully take it back to our hostel. Now, I have always had a strong sense of wanderlust. I was the kind of insufferable 17-year-old who would sit at the back and break espresso with my best friend Kendra on Friday at 4 p.m. We would read The Independent and talk about how much we wish we were growing up in Paris or Tokyo or Seattle, because it was the 90s. Now, I come by this honestly. There's these stories that we get from our parents, and this is the story that I got from my mother. She thought that getting married meant liberation from her father's house. She thought it meant travel, seeing some places, maybe moving to Boulder. But the truth of the matter is, they were 20 and 21 years old, and they didn't have any money to travel. And then by the time they did, she was so debilitated by chronic migraines and depression that she didn't get out of bed one to two days a week. So the idea of traveling and of going anywhere just really stressed her out. So when I came into my own, my form of rebellion was to say that I was not going to live my mother's life. I was going to do all the traveling and all the adventuring that she wasn't able to do. So now I'm 22. I'm at the Iron Horse having a beer with my aunties. I am explaining to them that I have no interest in white picket fences or little league games. They looked at me like, what? Well, what, what do you want? I looked at them and said, I want the world. 
Fast forward. I'm 30 years old, and I'm newly married to my husband, Run. That's, that's Run, like DMC. Some of you are old enough to get that reference. Um, so he's sort of a, a six foot one Israeli Jake Gyllenhaal. And he looks at me and he says, I'm ready to have babies. <laughs> Only, I'm still grieving. My mother had committed suicide two years before this. And all I wanted was to run away. So I look at him and I say, I've never been to India or Thailand. Now, the man I married is not one to back away from a challenge. So he says, no, 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 no. You're thinking too small. What if we just put everything we have into storage and just go traveling until we don't want to travel anymore? So a couple months later, we are off. We go to Israel, Jordan, Egypt. We live in a beach in India and do yoga for a month. We go to northern Thailand on motor scooters and travel across it. We attend a rocket festival in Laos. After six months of this, we get to a crossroads where we can't go on the path that I was planning and Run really wants to go to China. Now China was the one place that actually scared me. This felt like a little bit far off the backpackers trail that we were on. I mean, we didn't speak Mandarin and I didn't really expect people in China to speak English. Um, and then on top of that, I'm gluten intolerant. This means that I can't eat anything that has wheat in it, including soy sauce. So if I eat gluten, I get sharp stabby pains for about two days, and then for the next two weeks, I just feel bloated and constantly hungry. It's a big deal for my body. So I'm just thinking, how on earth do we go to China where I can't eat dumplings or sauce? So I'm not going to back down from this challenge, though. So we agree to contact my dad in Missoula, and he puts together a package of gluten-free food from the Good Food Store crackers and tasty bites and uh, some instant oatmeal and a jar of peanut butter, along with a couple pairs of hiking boots to supplement the flip-flops we've been traveling in, and new underwear so we can replace the four pairs that we have been rotating through for the past six months. With a package on the way, we get on a 30-hour bus ride from Luang Prabang, Laos to Kunming, China. We muck around in Kunming until our package arrives. We get it, we bring it back to our hostel, and it is like Christmas morning. We pull out the things, I try on the shoes, they fit, I gleefully throw away the old Fredbear underwear, and I hold aloft my jar of peanut butter that represents freedom and security. And the next day, we're off to our next adventure. We head towards the intersection of Tibet and Shangri-La, which in this case is an actual city. We're going to do something called the Tiger Leaping Gorge Trek. We arrive at Tiger Leaping Gorge at 8 a.m. on a misty morning in May. Um, it is sort of heavy gray clouds against a blue sky. As we start our ascent, below us is a thick river just heavy with spring rock. And along the path, we see these houses. And they have shutters and flower window boxes, like a Swiss chalet, but they also have the sort of curved Chinese roofs. You know, it's, it's rice paddies and the Swiss Alps. It's sort of disorienting. And I think, oh my god, I can't wait to tell my mom about this. And then there's that, that grief that comes up when you have a thought that you really want to share with someone who 
who isn't there to receive that anymore. We, we continue up the trail, we do the 29 switchbacks to get to the place called the Noxie Guest House. We're doing this hike nice and slow, so it's early afternoon and we're gonna call it quits from the day and just stay there overnight. And so I sit down on a chair overlooking the courtyard, I open my backpack, I pull out the jar of peanut butter, I open the lid, I peel off the seal because I haven't had it yet, and I grab my spoon and I take a bite and it's smooth and yet a little, a little crunchy and it's sweet and salty and it tastes like comfort. It tastes like home. And as I go to take another bite, we hear the sounds because there's construction going on. Now, my husband is really up for adventure, but he is not up for construction noises. So he comes over to me and he's like, let's go. I'm like, I'm hungry and I'm tired. Obviously, I'm really bloated from eating Chinese food, but it's not worth having a fight. So I grab my backpack, he grabs the bag of peanut butter, and it's in a paper bag. So as he lifts it up, that glass jar of organic peanut butter shoots out the bottom and splats on the flagstones below. I'm so sad. It's just a jar of peanut butter, right? But, but it's not. We continue on 10 feet apart in silence, because I'm not ready to talk to him yet. I'm sorry, he said. I didn't need to do that. I know. Softening, but I'm not quite ready to let it go. So as we, we're almost getting to the next guest house, and another sensation comes up in my body, because I really have to pee. And on one side of me is the mountain, and on the other side of me is a sheer cliff. So this isn't actually like a real great place to just go. So we hustle up the last little bit until we get to the halfway guest house, which is at the summit of this particular trip. And we walk in, and it kind of looks like Bizarro World, Lake McDonald Lodge right there. And I follow the infographic signs down through the hallways, out to the edge, and then there's this bathroom stall. I open the door and look down, and there's the two ceramic foot pads and the hole in the ground of a squat toilet. There's a wall on this side of me and a wall on this side of me, and in front of me, where there would usually be a wall, there's nothing but sky and mountains. We're at the apex of this hike, and as I undo my button and like go to squat, like I feel kind of dizzy. The view looks like I'm at an elevator right in front of the Mission Mountains. And if you've ever been on a really good hike, you get to the top of the mountain, and there's this moment where the mountains across from you seem so close, it's like you can it's like communing with the divine. And as I pee, I start to laugh. Y'all, I did it. I found the most beautiful squat toilet view in the world. I've traveled 10,000 miles, and now that I've gotten here, it kind of looks like Montana. So I think to myself, what are you still trying to prove? You've been running all the way around the world, all the way around the world, and running's not going to bring you all back. Maybe, maybe you just have to make peace with the fact that she chose her own ending. Maybe 
maybe it's okay to not try to rewrite the story anymore and just continue to live your own. Thank you. Thanks, Sasha. Sasha Vermel passionately believes that we all have a basic need to hear and tell stories. By day, she is a real estate agent with a sewing and design habit. Born and raised in Missoula, Montana, she earned a BFA from the University of Montana. In her former life, she worked in theater costume shops across the West and frequently performed on stage at Bonafide and Body Storytelling events in San Francisco. Our next story comes to us from Sarah Close. Sensitive listeners, please be aware that Sarah's story mentions suicidal thoughts. Sarah calls her story a lesson in magic. Thanks for listening. This whole story starts on my bedroom floor. A few years ago, I was sitting in my room with my back against my bed, facing my dresser. Our house was yellow, and the walls inside were yellow, and so the light was coming in from the south, and kind of like bouncing off the walls and making this really warm, beautiful glow. Um, my two-year-old was sleeping across the house soundly, and it was just really quiet, you know, maybe the occasional car passing by outside. So for all intents and purposes, it's a beautiful fall day. And I'm sitting there, and I look down at my hands, and I'm holding my phone, and I notice that my hands are kind of shaky, and I feel a little PMP. And I'm not really totally sure where to begin, so I just Google suicide hotline. So... <laughs> Obviously, like, I'm up here on stage. This is not a sad <laughs> story. Like, this whole thing turns out okay. Um, and so not to steal the punchline before we get there, but I will tell you guys that a couple weeks prior to this, I was on the phone with a woman that I really respected. I was interviewing her to be a speaker at a conference that I helped to create some of the speakers for. And she's a professional storyteller. And so I'm... I'm interviewing her and, and asking her about all these different amazing things within her work. She'd also just become a mom, so she, we were we kind of sidetracked into more like life land and not work land. And was asking me because I know her for a really long time, and she finally said, "Sarah, like, do you ever like have you ever thought about telling your story?" And I don't honestly, in in thinking back on this moment, like I don't really remember what came out of my mouth. I just remember that my hand had been furiously scribbling notes through this whole thing. And I looked down at, at what I was writing and I wrote the words, I believe in magic. And I do, you know, like, not the, not the kind of like, pull the word out of your ear magic, which my like daughter would be super stoked about and I still haven't figured out. <laughs> but but like synchronicity, you know, and those, those moments about goosebumps and those sort of like moments of connection in the work, those in, the world is sort of like universal waft inside the head. Not because those things happen to me all the time, but because when they do, I kind of know that I'm on the right path. And honest to God, magic has helped me turn some of the hardest moments in my life into moments of beauty. And so just to, to give an example of what I mean by that, years ago, um, I lost my partner in an avalanche. It's definitely the hardest probably the most significant moment I've had with grief to date. I was 24 years old, and for some reason, I, at 24 years old, got tasked with buying a perm. <laughs> I don't know, like, how many 24-year-olds have to go through the process of buying a perm. <laughs> but, because I knew that was going to be hard, I enlisted a friend to come with me. 
to make sure that I didn't end up in some sort of like sad person puddle on the floor of like whatever kind of store sells urns because I didn't know what that was at that time. So we're in the car and we're driving and he turns to me and he's like, Sarah, like, what do you think the urn's going to look like? And I was like, well, Johnny only said his spirit animal is a tiger, so I bet it's going to have a tiger on which I was like kind of joking about, but kind of also like felt serious about it. We pull into the parking lot, we get out of the car, we go into the store, and we open the doors and walk in. Literally, there's a shelf right in the center of the store. And you guys, I'm not even joking. There is like one wooden box on the shelf with a tiger on it. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that feels kind of magical. And about six months later from that, uh, I went home with my parents for the holiday. It was my first holiday I had spent without my partner in a really long time. And I was so thankful, obviously, for my parents for taking me in. Um, but y'all, like, I didn't really want to be there. You know, like, I just, I didn't want to be there. Like, I wanted to be with this person and couldn't. Um, and my parents were so amazing. My mom, at one point, went downstairs to the basement. She runs back up this shoebox, and it's full of those, like, um, like sepia, tethered, old photos. And we start going through them. There are all these pictures of my grandma and my dad says, so why don't you go grab a pen? Like, you just never know when one of us isn't going to be around to tell you who's in these photos. Like, I'll tell you if you write the names on the back. Like, great. So we did. This is perfect, whole, beautiful, complete evening. And my dad passed away. You know, so I didn't know. And that was hard, you know. But still, it was magical because like, the universe was setting me up to have this experience that I needed to have, you know, like, even though I didn't know it at the time. So, anyways, before I like woo woo the heck out on you guys. <laughs> too much. Going back to that moment on my floor in my bedroom, like, there was not a lot of magic happening in that moment. I, um, I just, I was so profoundly sad, um, that it actually physically hurts. Um, and like Mark said, I teach yoga, so like any good yoga teacher does, you're like, I can gratitude my way out of this. So I, like, like trying to pull all these moments of like the things that I was thankful for, all these pieces that I was thankful for, because maybe one of them would help me pull myself out of this, and it just wasn't happening. So I closed my eyes and I found the number at the top of the Google search and I hit call. And the phone rang, and then I got this message that the hotline was closed. Yeah. I mean, right? Like, suicide hotline, I don't know. Anyways, that's like a whole different conversation. But the hotline was closed. So I am sitting there like, holy hell, this was like a really big move. And now you're closed and I don't know what to do. And then this little voice comes on and said, if you'd like to be transferred to our sister hotline, press one. And I'm like, well, why the hell not? Like, let's just press one. So we're here. So I press one. And it transfers me. And then I get this like, god awful whole music. Like the kind that's like really annoyingly upbeat. Even if you're not like a suicidal, depressed person calling for help, it was like the worst. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And then this voice picks up at the end of the line. I'm like, okay, thank goodness. Somebody's here. Somebody's gonna help. 
and she has the thickest, drippiest Jamaican accent I have ever heard in my entire life. And I literally was like, oh my gosh, customer service fail? Like, I'm offshore. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what to do with this. And I was so frustrated. But she started talking, and she had this, like, warm, sweet tone. And so I kind of hung on. And she started asking me all these questions, like the right ones that you'd expect somebody to ask. Like, do you have a plan? No. Are you in immediate danger? No. Is there anybody else in the house with you? You guys, it's like, it's like a phone. Because there was somebody in the house with me. And it was the very person that I took every breath for, that I take every breath for, that I never want to leave this world ever for. And she was sleeping so peacefully across the house with zero idea what was happening for her mom. And if I said, yeah, my daughter's here, like, you're that making a bad mom. Was I going to lose my child? Was she going to call child services? And before I was like in this whole thought process in my head and the words came out, yes, my daughter's here. And Jamaican woman transformed in an instant into Jamaican mama. I will spare you guys my Jamaican accent as I'm going through all these things with her. She was like, oh my gosh, how old is she? What's her name? And we spent the next like 20 minutes talking about kids, about love, about how hard those early childhood years are, about our philosophies on everything being with babies, about motherhood, about our moms, and I swear I could have just hung out in that space with her in my room forever. It felt like sitting with my mom. And so eventually we had to both realize, like, okay, like, I called you and you're the person, and I, like, this is suicide not mine. So she's like, hey, it's a holiday weekend, everything's closed. Note. Everything's closed. And let's just like steer you in. In case you need any help. Where are you? And I'm like, well, I'm in Missoula. And she's like, well, where's that? How do you spell it? It's like, everybody asks that when you say Missoula to anybody who does not hear it. So I'm like, oh, it's M-I-S-S-O-U-L-A. I'm in Montana. Where are you? She's like, oh, I'm in Washington, D.C. And then I said, well, what side? Because there's two for anybody that has been there. There's a Maryland and Virginia side. She said, I'm on the Maryland side. And I was like, okay, well, where in Maryland? Elmhart County, do you know it? And I literally started to feel the hair come up on the back of my neck because he didn't know it. And I kind of knew where this was going. And I said, where in Hart County? She said, I'm in Columbia. And I'm like, okay, where in Columbia? And she said, I'm at Howard County General Hospital. You guys, like, Jamaican mama, Jamaican lady, whatever you want to call her, was not in Jamaica. She was literally working in the hospital where I was born, like on the other side of the country. And she could have probably, like my mom's house is across the street, my mom was probably in the house as we were talking, she probably could have hucked the rock out the window in my parents' house. And I didn't know anything else to say other than, I, I think you're my angel, you know? It was just, um, I don't think I've ever felt more held in my entire life. And I would have never connected with my like, Jamaican mom angel, which she doesn't know that I called her this. But <laughs> my Jamaican mom angel, had I not Googled or pressed one or waited for that 
something that awful old music or like resistance to shamestorm or any of those pieces, you know, like there was so many moments along the way to let the fear of stigma and shame and should to the real and just taking into this space of being lost. Um, and I think coming out of that experience, I think about my daughter was thinking about this earlier today, like she always tells me like, mom, things can be sad and happy. And I think I was just stuck in this dichotomy of, of, of being lost and that really had nothing to do with it. It wasn't about being lost or about being found, but remembering that we're always and in all the ways connected to each other, you know? And sometimes it just takes that universal hotline to be reminded of the magic. Thanks, Sarah. Remember, if you are having suicidal thoughts or need help, you are not alone. Reach out. The Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1 800 273 8255. You can also visit projecttomorrowmt.org or text MT to 741 741. Sarah Close is a strategist and convener of good ideas and good people. Director by day, yoga teacher by night, but a mom all the time. She's happiest on the water, on trails, or on the trampoline, but definitely not on snow and is still trying to figure out how to do winter in Montana. Right. Lauren Gonzalez is up next with a story that she calls No Girls Allowed. Thanks for listening. I had never wished so hard in my life to see a penis. Wait. Let me back up. Let me back up a little bit. I didn't always want kids, but when I finally decided... My clock is ticking, now's the time. My husband and I went ahead and had one, yay. Um, And we were delighted, not just because it was a healthy baby, but because it was a boy. He got the boy that he could name after his brother who had passed several years previously. And I got the boy that I wanted because girls are mean and they're manipulative. I've lived the experience and I know, but also because When I was about eight years old, I got my first babysitting gig, and I was tasked with babysitting this girl named Hannah, who was about three years old. And somehow our activities together devolved into her throwing toys at me and blocks and like hard matchbox cars. Like toys hurt when they hit you, if you didn't know. Um, And so I just ended up not knowing what to do. I so desperately wanted to do a good job. Um, And I didn't want to admit that I needed any help. So I ended up just cowering in the corner and crying, tears streaming down my face. It occurs to me now I could have left the room, but you do do what you do in the moment. Um, And it it was traumatic. And I knew from then on, you know, if if I ever have kids one day, no girls, thanks. Um, So this was my life plan. And I knew that it would work out because I just... I couldn't envision myself mothering girls, so obviously I wouldn't have any. That's how life works, right? Um, So we had this baby, Joey, our firstborn, super mellow, easy baby. So I'm like, man, we're good parents. Let's go ahead and have like three to seven more right away. So we get pregnant right away um, with a second, and right away it feels off. Like I know evil is growing inside me. The first experience was like a Cush Cadillac ride, like very comfortable, very cool. The second experience was like a bumper car ride at the fair. I just felt like jostled and uncomfortable and nauseous and sick. 
But still I thought, you know, I held out. I was like, my life plan, my life plan, it's gonna work out. We get to the gender reveal party, pink M&M spill out of the cake, and I'm still like, mm, doctors practice, which means they can make mistakes. They're practicing. So, you know, baby penises are cartoonishly small. It could just be, you can't find it on that little screen. So every ultrasound, I'm going and I'm staring at that little screen and I'm wishing for a penis. I'm just wishing so hard. And it just never materializes. And then finally, the day of the birth comes and out she comes, June Pearl. And I stare into her little face and I just think, what are you? And what do you want from me? Because honestly, I didn't have a whole lot to give. I, I didn't know how to mother a girl. Honestly, I don't think I was strong enough. I thought you needed to be a strong woman to mother a strong woman. And I didn't have what it took. So I, um, I, we moved forward together. Obviously, I took her home. I bathed her. I fed her. <laughs> she still lives with me, in case you're wondering. Um, but I didn't know what to do. I just felt so much. Um, there was no passion, there was no joy in it, it was more like obligation, and I felt very resentful that she was taking my attention away from my firstborn, my boy, um, and I felt super guilty, because what mom feels this way about their kid um, wasn't an experience I had expected to have, and it wasn't my life plan. Um, and so we move forward, she keeps getting older, she keeps needing from me. She needs love. She needs attention. She needs affection, all these things. And she gets to age two, age three, age four. Um, and I turn into this person I don't even recognize. Um, I'm this tyrant. I'm yelling. I'm screaming. I, I don't know how to control her. Um, she's very strong-willed. Some of you have met her, then you know. Um, she's earned quite the reputation. But I am, I just turn into this tyrant, and I, it's the only way I know how to get back control, because I don't want to be that girl cowering in the corner anymore, so I try being the, the, the bully instead, and I end up, you know, just trying to take control by being over the top, and I, do you know what it feels like to scream at a two-year-old? It feels terrible. I would slam doors, I would run into my room and just cry on my bed and think, what have I become? I don't even recognize myself. I was afraid to be alone with her, really, and I'm sure my husband was afraid to leave me alone with her. I just was so angry. I'd never seen that level of anger come out of me before, but I had seen it before, because as parents, we only know how to parent the way that we have been parented. And in my house, any loss of control, I mean, my dad was known to throw staplers, objects, slam doors, yell and scream, um, and it's all I knew how to do. And so. I just learned to live in this little box. I learned to be with the adults around me needed and um, to live really small. And so that's how I grew up and that's how I lived my life. And then June came around and man, she was born with a strong spirit. And I can tell you, this, this legacy of anger was my family's story for generations, but it's not our story. Because June came out with this fighting spirit and she would not live inside this little box, man. She just... She wouldn't be controlled. I, I couldn't get control. Um, and so at some point around age four or five, she and I together kind of learned to live in this strength that exists between the girl crying in the corner and between the bully throwing the blocks. There's this strength right in the middle. And she taught me that. She taught me how to live there um, and how to be 
to get, I don't have to get control. I don't have control over anything. And I, I don't think I ever realized that um, until she came along. Um, and she has just grown into this amazing girl who wears a backward slip as a dress to the daddy-daughter dance at the Y and is a total creative. I mean, she just sees the whole world in color. And learning to see it her way has been such an amazing experience. And then, um, you know, she squirrels away little pieces of trash in her room in this insane filing system that, like, she knows if I've touched it, but she also, like, she knows where everything is. I'm getting on board, you know? I'm like, this is the experience that we're having, and we're doing it together. So, um, you know, I went back when I brought her home from the hospital for the first time, I didn't know how to process my feelings, and so as a writer, I just blogged about it because... Why would you not just write about it for millions of people to read on the internet, you know? They put all your feelings out there. Um, and so I did that, and I remember my mom telling me, you're probably going to regret this, because how will she feel when she grows up and she reads, you know, your experience and, and everything, that how it happened? Um, and I can't say for sure how she will feel, but I hope that if she has kids, if she has kids, um, she will know that you don't have to be a perfect parent when you start out. You just learn to be the parent that your kid needs, um, and you make room. You just learn to make room. Um, and you, a lot of times your healing is found in that process and on that journey. Um, and I hope she sees that as a mother, the experience doesn't have to look any certain way. It doesn't have to feel the way it feels for everyone else. It doesn't have to be Pinterest-worthy. Um, just follow the journey. I mean, you just everybody gets there in their own way. Sometimes it's fucked up, but you get there. And then if she doesn't have kids, I hope that she sees that she was the beauty that tamed the beast that I was when she first came out. And um, I couldn't be more grateful. Um, and she, because of that, she's capable of anything. And I can't wait to see um, what comes out of her and where we go together. Thank you. Thanks, Lauren. Lauren Gonzalez is a Southern-born 30-something who writes and edits, climbs, and pretends to learn the drums, sings, homeschools, and mothers two plucky kids alongside her partner of 10 years here in beautiful Missoula, Montana. Our next storyteller, Paul Mwinga, is a refugee from Congo by way of Rwanda. We call Paul's story Riding the Bus. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. I want to tell you something about riding bus in Missoula. But before that, I want to tell you how I was riding bus in my country, the Republic Democrat of Congo. In my country, in the city of Bukavu, we didn't have, didn't have a bus like, line of bus like here in Missoula. But we have a city, a district close to the big city, which is Bagira, and it's like Lolo for Missoula. And it's only people who live in that area who have to ride the bus. And the issue is to get place in that bus, uh, for some people, is, you need to go through the windows to get in the bus. Uh, and with all risk to be stolen something, phone, or they can stall money. Then I crossed the border because of the war. I come in Rwanda, where I spent 18 years as a refugee. In Rwanda, it's kind of things we make order when we want to take the bus. And 
When we get to the bus station, we have to make line. Is the first person to arrive at the bus stop who's going to get in the bus first. Then when we arrive here in Missoula in November 2018, ERC, the organization who welcomed refugees here, taught us how to ride the bus. And first, we was in need to go to the hospital or to go to Walmart, the one of the South one, or to take kids at school. And one of my son was registered at uh, Santonal High School. And they teach us that we should, we was living close to Franklin Elementary School. And from there, we should take the bus number two. Then the first day, the volunteer took my son at, at school. And the sec second day, I decided to take my, my son and see where he's taking class. Then we take the bus from Franklin Elementary School. We arrived downtown. All people in the bus get out. Even the driver also get out. And we decide also to get out. <laughs> when we get out, and I ask, I ask my son now, how many buses did you take to come to, to go to school? So we take only one bus. Now, where is the school? I decide, OK, I can ask someone. I ask someone for help. He said, OK. To, go, to get to Sentinel High School, you must take bus number one. Okay. Then he show us the bus number one. We get in the bus number one. We get to school. I go to the office to apologize for my son. Then on my way, go, go back at, at home, I was thinking how a guy, a, a boy of 16 years old, can get in the bus, and they can change the bus without his knowing, and he get at school. I was thinking about that, and we arrive at uh, Southgate Mall. For my, for my idea, I was supposed to get out of that bus to wait for the bus number two who can take me to my place. Then I get out of the bus, and I sit on my bench. Turning my head like that, I saw the bus number two leaving the station. What? Where is this bus come from? I didn't see any bus here. No, I decided to make a call. I called an interpreter. So I, I explained to him how the bus, I, I missed the bus. Then he said, oh, Paul, you make a mistake. Is just the bus who changed the number and not to, you don't have to change the bus. From your house to downtown, the bus is number two. I arrived downtown, changed the number from one to, from two to one. And from there, Arrive at South Mall, Southgate Mall, have to change the number from one to two. <laughs> now I understand that my son was right, because when he, they take only one bus to get to Sentinel School, so I said, okay, I get a lesson, it's not late, okay. I wait there for 15 minutes, then I, another bus, I arrive, I saw as he's coming in, it was number one. Then I saw as he changed number, it, just, it became number two. I wait, I get in the bus, and they get home. After that, I get, I get to my job at St. Patrick Hospital. And the fourth day, I was supposed to go early to work. And when we arrived here, in our country, we didn't have the snow. And it was our first time to see the snow. 
at first I was seeing my kids playing with the snow. I didn't feel that it was very cold. Now I wake up in the morning. I go to Southgate Saf Mall to wait for the bus. I didn't wear a clothes which can protect me uh, with the cold. I arrived there. I wait for almost 15 minutes and I was cold. The cold the change from cold in this fire on my hands. All the ears was burning. I saw the bus number seven pass there. I didn't know that bus, bus number seven can took me at, uh, at downtown. I was waiting only for bus number two or bus number one. <laughs> then, by chance, the bus arrived. I was suffering myself. I was crying. I tried to, I put my hand on my shoulder. I put, I look how I can be warm, but I didn't get that. I get in the bus quickly and I go to the bottom, crying in myself, looking how I can feel better. And it was very hot. I was burning all my hand, my ears. We got, I didn't know how we get downtown and it was under a strong wind. I ran to go to my work and I explained to my supervisor what happened to me. And so I missed the bus and I didn't, I very cold. No, it's hell, oh, Paul, sorry. We didn't know that, uh, yeah, we didn't experience the, the snow, but uh, at Saget, at Suffolk Mall, we, you should take the bus number seven, you should take the bus number six or number eight. But, <laughs> No, it's okay. I got my lesson. From there, I learned how to help all new newcomers in Missoula. I tried to help them with ride because I already get my, my car. Every time I saw someone outside in the snow, I tried to help him. And when I am with him, I try to tell him, my friend, don't play with the snow because the snow could bind you. <laughs> Thank you for that. I get Thanks, Paul. Paul Moinga is the Refugee Congress delegate for Montana. He is a resettled refugee from the Democratic Republic of the Congo and came to the United States in November 2018. Moinga is studying computer network design, configuration, and administration modules at Missoula College. Today, he works as a Swahili language instructor and private contractor at the Lifelong Learning Center and a food service worker at Providence St. Patrick Hospital. In his free time, he enjoys hiking and walking along the river. Our next storyteller is Jen Serta. Jen originally shared this story in 2020 during one of the Tell Us Something live-streamed events. It is such an important story that we thought she deserved a live in-person audience to hear it. Jen agreed. Jen calls her story, How to Love This World. Sensitive listeners, please be aware that Jen's story mentions sexual assault. Thanks for listening. So there's this thing that used to happen to me every year when the weather would get just above 45 and it was suddenly sandal weather in Missoula, I would be standing in line at the grocery store, hang out in a friend's backyard, floating the river, and inevitably someone would look down at my feet and they would ask me the question I dreaded. Hey, what's your tattoo? 
I hated this question. And I hated it because every time someone would ask me this, I was just flooded inside with shame. 10 years ago, I was 24, and leaving Montana in what I thought would be a permanent move, and I was just heartbroken about leaving. For the previous few years, Montana had been this place where I had felt the most alive, most fully myself that I had felt ever in my life, and I was so afraid to lose that feeling. And I was just desperate to take with me some kind of a reminder of what this place had meant to me. So I made an appointment at a local tattoo shop, like you do when you're 24 and having a quarter-life crisis. And since this was going to be my first tattoo, I was more than a little nervous about how it was going to turn out. So I asked the artist who was going to be doing my tattoo if he would mind doing a drawing ahead of the appointment for me to just kind of help ease my anxiety that it would be what I, I wanted it to be. And he said that he would. So for the six weeks prior to the appointment, I checked in diligently every week with him to see if the drawing that he had promised me was ready. And each week, he kind of blew me off. He'd say he'd been really busy that week, and he'd get to it the next week. And that happened over and over again. I was starting to feel a little uneasy about it, but he had come really highly recommended by a friend, so I stuck with him. Finally, the day of the appointment arrived, and I still hadn't seen a drawing. I got there, and he asked me to remind him what it was that I wanted, and talked to me in a tone of pretty clear disinterest for a few minutes. And then he disappeared in the back somewhere, and like I swear five minutes later, comes back out, and he hands me this piece of paper. And it has a clip art picture on it, and some text in a font that I would say was like a Microsoft Word scripty sort of font. And I didn't love it, so I asked him if he would be willing to make a few changes. And he basically told me, with the air of someone who was being incredibly inconvenienced, that it would just be a lot of trouble for him to make some changes to this design right now. And if I wanted to get a tattoo that day, it was pretty much, it was too late. I had waited six weeks for this appointment. And I was leaving Montana in another two weeks. And I just felt this pressure. Like, it was now or never. I remember it was a warm day, and I can still feel the vinyl chairs sticking to the back of my legs. The air was just thick with this metallic buzzing. And a tall, pretty intimidating, somewhat annoyed man towered over me and asked, ready? Uh, yeah, yeah, ready. I said that even though I didn't feel ready or good about this at all. The second the needle touched my skin, I knew. I knew this wasn't what I wanted for my body in this moment. 
I knew I was abandoning my intuition, my inner knowing, myself. And I said yes, anyway. There have been other times in my life where I have felt intimidated and powerless, where I've had a man do things to my body that I did not want. And at 24, no one was forcing me to get this tattoo. I was choosing this. I had power in this situation. And I gave it away. I stayed frozen and silent again. And because of that, the hummingbird didn't come out as soft and elegant as I was hoping that it would. It sort of was sort of rough looking, like its feathers had kind of been blown around in a windstorm and it was positioned in this sort of aggressive way, like it was ready to dive bomb something at any moment. And then there was the line from the Mary Oliver poem that I loved. There's only one question, how to love this world. In that Microsoft Word font. And as it turns out, the side of your foot is in a great place for a tattoo. So over time, the words faded in such a way that eventually it just read one question. I used to tell people when they would ask me what the one question was, that it was a choose your own question tattoo while slowly dying inside a little. But the truth is, what it, looks, what it looked like is not the real reason why I felt so much shame when someone would notice it and why I tried so hard to hide it. It's because this tattoo was a literal, physical reminder of psychological scars, ones that I didn't ask for, that I've profoundly disliked about myself for a long time, and that, like my tattoo, I tried really hard to avoid looking at. And things went on like that for about a decade, until March 2020, the pandemic happened, and suddenly, like a lot of people, I was spending a ton of time alone without much distraction. And as the lockdown days turned into weeks and months, I was finding it harder and harder to avoid my own thoughts and to avoid looking at the things I had tried so hard to avoid. And of course, it was also hard to avoid looking at my tattoo because I wasn't leaving my house, so I didn't have a reason to wear shoes. And during that time, I realized something. I realized that it was not a matter of if I would look at these scars, but a matter of how. I could continue to look at them with self-hatred and disgust, as I had been, or I could choose. I could choose to look at them with some compassion for myself. 
I can't change the experience that I had of getting that tattoo or of any of the other experiences that it reminds me of. But what I can do is take small steps to reclaim them. So earlier this year, I made an appointment at a different local tattoo shop. The artist that I met with, who I researched thoroughly beforehand this time, was kind, and she asked me thoughtful questions as I tried to explain the design that I was picturing in my head. Fireweed has a somewhat unappealing name, but I think it's beautiful, and it is one of my favorite, has become one of my favorite wildflowers in my time as a Montanan. And even more importantly than that, fireweed gets its name from its ability to grow in burned areas landscapes that have been traumatized by wildfires. It's the first flower to bloom to reclaim a landscape after a fire scars it. And now, fireweed blooms from one of my scars too. It's a reminder that new growth can heal and transform even a place of terrible destruction. And also, an answer to that one question of my original tattoo, how to love this world like this, including the devastation and the beauty, the uncertainty, the grief, the joy, and everything in between, and including me, too. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Jen Serta is originally from New York, but accidentally began a love affair with Montana in 2009 and is grateful to have called Missoula home since. Jen works as a mental health therapist at an elementary school where she spends her days debating the finer points of making fart noise with your slime and playing The Floor is Lava. When not at work, Jen can most often be found hiking with her dogs and running late for something. Initially, I had hoped that Rosie and Teresa would share a story individually. When they pitched the idea of sharing their story in tandem, I was skeptical. I thought, well, this isn't a normal year. Why not? March 22nd, and I'm not flying to Phoenix. I'm in a long-distance relationship with a man who I think is going to be the next great love of my life. But we've been having an argument on the phone. I'm saying I have to cancel my flight. My mom is crying and he's saying things like, well, at our age, I don't think we do what our moms tell us. I had stopped all theater productions, all classes. I had no answers for anyone. On the next Tell Us Something podcast, tune in to listen to them share their experience of a pandemic reckoning that they call March 22nd. Thanks once again to our title sponsor, Blackfoot Communications. They deliver superior technology solutions through trusted relationships and enrich the lives of their customers, owners, and employees. Learn more at blackfoot.com. And thanks to all of our in-kind sponsors. Hi, it's Joyce from Joyce of Tile. If you need tile work done, give me a shout. I specialize in custom tile installations. Learn more and see some examples of my work at joyceoftile.com. Hey, this is Gabe from Gecko Designs. We're proud to sponsor Tell Us Something. Learn more at geckodesigns.com. 
Missoula Broadcasting Company, including the family of ESPN Radio, The Trail 103.3, Jack FM, and my favorite place to find a dance party while driving, U104.5. Float Missoula. Learn more at floatmsla.com and missoulaevents.net. To learn more about Tell Us Something, please visit tellussomething.org.